0: have your Bibles, and I hope you do, that's that you turn to Colossians 1. As most of you know, we've been studying through the passage of Luke, and we'll continue, but as I was studying through this passage of Luke, uh, some parallel things that I was studying to build up this, it became obvious that we needed to talk about something else this morning God compelled me into, and that's just kind of a jumping off place. This will be a little bit of a different type of sermon this morning, but it's okay. Um, We have been studying through Luke, and the last couple of weeks we talked about Luke 4, 31 through 37, Jesus delivering a man from a demon. This after we saw Jesus defeat Satan for himself in the wilderness, and here we saw him defeat the enemy for a human being. Luke building a case that Jesus is indeed the one to be our Savior. Showing that he could defeat Satan, not only for himself, but for human beings. Remember, we've said that Luke does not write in strictly chronological order, but he's building this case to teach us who Jesus is. The Christ, the Savior, the Chosen One the deliverer. And I love that title. Psalm 144, bless be the lord my rock my loving kindness my fortress my stronghold my deliverer. We talk a lot about being saved. We use the word salvation, we talk about being saved. And I'm afraid that sometimes that word can get a little stale. We can kind of forget the meaning, the meaning as you know, we save some cake for later or we save some money in the bank and we think of being saved, we know it's more serious than that, but I think just the use of the word sometimes just gets lost a little, becomes a little boring, kind of like the manna in the desert. We know it's important, we know that it's real, we know that it's from God, but sometimes we're looking for something a little different. And I noticed that preaching these last two weeks, and and with that and with the... um, The online posts about those messages. There's been a lot of interest about demons. And there just is in general. They're intriguing. They're interesting. They're scary. They're sensational. But maybe not enough interest on being delivered from those demons. Well, there's stories, a lot of stories on deliverance, like in the exorcism type of deliverance, but that's not just what I'm talking about here. We all need deliverance. We all need deliverance. Christians cannot be possessed by demons, as we've, we've made plain the last couple of weeks, but we can be harassed and bothered by them. Non-believers need to be delivered. They need to be Rescued, saved. And so I want to talk a little bit about what John MacArthur calls the neglected doctrine of deliverance. The word deliver and deliverance is used some nearly 200 times in Scripture. Psalm 32:7, You are my hiding place, You preserve me from trouble, You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Psalm 49, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, you know, O Lord. And Remember who Jesus said he was coming to when he spoke in the synagogue? And he kind of repeated it when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the blind, the poor, those poor in spirit, those who can't see spiritually, all that. Psalm 72, 4, may he defend the cause of the poor, of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. So it felt a little odd this week, I moved that little ribbon marker in my Bible out of Luke, and over to Colossians. So again, if you have your Bibles on, I hope that you do, turn to Colossians 1, we'll be picking up at verse 9. gracious God as we do open your word this morning your very word your inspired word your word given not to authors but given to transcribers given to people to write down what you would have them put in every word breathed out by you Lord may we breathe it in this morning as we here. May we breathe in the breath of God in Jesus name. Amen. And so from this day we heard we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in the manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him Redemption, the forgiveness of sin. A beautiful, powerful little passage of Paul telling the church in Colossae what he prays for them. And this church is what I pray for you as well, that we would have the knowledge of God's will, that we would have all spiritual wisdom, that we would, as a church, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That we, you and I, Monday through Saturday as well, would walk in a manner fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in everything we do. And increasing in the knowledge of God. So all these things are connected. When we talk about reading other books and spending more time reading our Bible, we're talking about increasing in the knowledge of God. And I pray for you that you may be strengthened with all power, According to God's glorious might, His glorious might, that you would have endurance and that you would have patience. You would have joy. Giving thanks to the Father, and I love this, who has qualified you. Because, brother and sister, we ain't qualified on our own. And we've done nothing to become qualified. Justify through the work of Christ on the cross. So now he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is written only to believers. This particular, other people can read it and other people can ask for it, but the, the promise here is only for believers. We have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's a good word, too. Transferred. We don't hear that a lot in the Bible. There's a good hymn with transfer in it. Anybody know? Anybody know? Great things he hath taught us, great things he hath done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus our Son, but pure and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, same thing, when Jesus we see. Moved from one place to another, transported, transferred, delivered. And that's the word I want to talk about this morning, being delivered. And I want to look from this passage back through a story we've talked about the last couple of weeks, the exodus of Israel. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to go through some of the highlights. But I want you to look for three ways that Israel was delivered. They were delivered out of bondage and into a limited freedom. They were delivered out of error and into truth. And finally, they were delivered out of the world into a promised land. So the nation of Israel, we know, were enslaved in Egypt. Long story getting there, but, but they were enslaved in Egypt. God promised deliverance. In Exodus 6, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you, for I am the Lord. So God goes to a people in slavery. He promises to deliver, and then he sends a deliverer, right? He sends Moses, who happened to be raised in the same household as their oppressor. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. You probably know the story, the killing the little... Jewish boys and his mother put him in a basket to float in the river, and Pharaoh's daughter found him and took her to his house. So God calls Moses to be the deliverer, and God listens to Moses who says, I don't think I can do this, right? And he sends Aaron first to prepare the way. Aaron goes with Moses. And then, and going through this very quickly, then there are the, the plagues The slavery gets worse, right? There's bricks without straw. And then they're called to a sacrifice. Each of God's people is called to sacrifice a lamb and to place the blood over their door and underneath the blood of the lamb they are saved as the angel of death passes over all those who were in obedience. And then they're delivered, right? Then comes the actual exodus where they leave Egypt, and they get to that place where they're in front of the Red Sea. They're following God in the cloud and in the pillar. And they get there and Pharaoh's army, after Pharaoh's changed his mind, is chasing them down. And, and they're caught between the army and the sea. And then God opens the sea. And he sends them through. And we've talked about that as an image of God saving us, right, and delivering us that Pharaoh's army is the oppressor. The Red Sea is kind of like the wrath of God. He holds back the wrath so that the people can pass through. But when the people have passed through, what happens to the ones coming behind, the oppressors? They feel the full vengeance of the wrath. And safely on the other side, Israel stands on the hillside and looks and sees what God has done. God provides for them with the water from a rock and manna from heaven. So they've been delivered out of bondage. And then they come to Sinai. And after years of living under Egyptian rule and Egyptian law and with some traditions of their own and some mixed in with others, God calls Moses up on Sinai and gives him the law. And the purpose of the law is to deliver them out of error and into truth. And at the end of chapter 20 in Exodus, I'm sorry, chapter 23, God promises them, before they leave Sinai, promises them they're going to go and gain entry to the promised land. In this Deliverance from error, there are given instructions for worship, for sacrifice, for the Sabbath. All these things to remember, right? How does the first of the commandments start? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. In case you forgot, every time you repeat these, you'll remember who I am. But no sooner did they get tired of waiting on Moses than they began their first disobedience and they began to pollute their worship and they worship the golden calf which causes the whole thing to kind of blow up but God brings them back and he sends them off again to the promised land and they get there just ready to enter the place that God had promised after a very short period of time this isn't the 40 years this is a very short period of time get to the edge of the promised land, and Joshua and Caleb and some others go in to spy out the land. And they come out. And Joshua and Caleb says, this is it. Let's do it. We've got all sorts of crops, all sorts of stuff to eat. We can go in and do this thing. But the other spies, no, 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 no. Those guys are too big for us. We can't take them. We can't beat them. We'll be slaughtered. Israel's army cannot defeat that army. Of course it couldn't. There was no way that they could. We mentioned this last week, right? They couldn't beat Pharaoh's army either. It wasn't about how big Israel's army was. It's about how big what? How big God is. Yeah. God promised them this. He was going to lead them in And they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in this wilderness. And what they asked for, they got. And every one of them, except for Joshua and Caleb, died in that 40 years in the wilderness. And then came the time, back to the promised land. And Joshua In Hebrew, Yeshua, the same name of Jesus, delivers them by the hand of God out of that world and into the promised land. So we see these things that happened, and they happened for real, but they were also a foreshadowing of things to come. There's something from which we should learn some lessons. We should learn that there are also three types of deliverance from the church, out of bondage And into a limited freedom, out of error into truth, and out of this world into the promised land. Later on, God would promise this through the prophet Isaiah. A redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So Israel represented, in the Exodus story, represented all people because all people are in slavery to sin. We're in slavery to Satan and his kingdom. God promises a deliverer. Oh, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or Yeshua, or Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. And then God sends the deliverer, right? Jesus is born. He, he is come, and Maybe just coincidence, but it it would be that, that our Savior, our Deliverer, and our Oppressor spent most of history in the same household, right? Satan fell from heaven. Perhaps as Aaron prepared the way, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. And in that time, between then and now, I think our slavery has gotten worse. I think Satan has been ramping up. I think it's more subtle. It often is pleasant looking. We said when we prayed, some forms of evil are obvious and horrific, and some just creep in. And we like the frogs in the kettle, right? Put a frog in hot water, it jumps out. But you put a frog in cold water and slowly turn up the heat. He doesn't notice. And this world has gotten more and more and more evil. But there's good news. Like the lambs at the first Passover, God sent the Passover lamb. And that blood has already been spilled, and that sacrifice has already been made, and we have been delivered out of bondage. Those of us who, like Linda said, right, those who believe have been delivered out of bondage to a, to a limited freedom. right? In this world, it's a, it's a limited freedom. We're not free completely from oppression. We're not free completely from a sinful world. But we do live in a place where we can see and discern good from evil. We live in a place where we can know how to respond and when we should respond to evil. God does care for us. As surely as he gave water and man in the desert, he provides for us now. We've also been delivered out of error into truth. And that's a battle we have to keep fighting. We have to keep Reminding ourselves and our fellow believers of the truth of God's Word. The manner of that delivery is given to us. But it is questioned constantly, expectedly by those outside the church. But horrifically by those inside. Who who used the same line Satan used in the garden. Oh, God really didn't mean that. Oh, that really doesn't apply now. We're sophisticated people now. We don't need that. God created a world, a universe, a sun, planets that would perfectly spin right? Gravity would be perfect. People who could live in that gravity under this sun with this amount of oxygen. He created things that would perfectly exist. If we needed a revised Bible, God would provide it. God's Word needs no revision. Now, understandably, some people have taken with great effort under God's care, I think, to translate it well so that we could understand it as languages have changed, and there are languages, some 3,000 in the world, that still don't have the Bible in their language, but that's different than changing what it says to suit the times. This is not a small thing. Error, I know the word doctrine sometimes makes us uncomfortable, error in doctrine is, is not a small thing. And it is, I don't know if you read, like, church news websites. But it is terrifying what is going on in the church around the world. It is terrifying. And it all comes back to a lack of regard for the Word of God. A redefinition of the things that God says. But we have, brothers and sisters, the method for our delivery out of error into truth given to us as God's inerrant, inspired word, as certainly as he gave it to Moses on Sinai. So what do we do with it? Do we repeat Israel's error? You know, we have a promised entry. Right after God gave the law, he gave a promised entry into the promised land. That's going to come. I'm going to take you. And he says the same to us, right? Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have Everlasting life. We have the same promise. We need to watch that we don't commit the same errors. That we don't pollute our worship. We've had the same instructions for worship and sacrifice and the Sabbath to remember that they did. And we need to remind ourselves that anything that would come between us and God is an idol. The golden calf was a very visible idol, very repugnant idol. These days, an idol can be something that may not in and of itself be evil. It could be your job, it could be your career, it could be your house, it could be your work at church. It could be things that are good, but if they get put between you and God, if they become more important to you than God, then they can become idols. Or the second mistake that Israel made the fear of the battle when they were first called into the promised land and they were scared. Those guys are bigger than we are. We can't take them. Well, we're called into a battle as well. And so what, what do we look at and say we can't do? Well, I can't tell that person about Jesus. They may laugh at me. I might get embarrassed. I heard um, one of the pastors I listen to a lot, his name's Mark Dever, and he said, if if you say you're a Christian and you don't tell other people about Jesus, then I don't know what you mean. It's pretty plain. If you say you're a Christian and you're not telling other people about Jesus, I, I don't know what you mean by saying you're a Christian. That is part of the battle. Those other people that don't know about Jesus are still in slavery and are condemned. They need to be delivered. And for his purposes and for his glory, God has told who to go get them? Us, right? Going to all the world, making disciples. Jesus even prefaced it, in case you were thinking about not listening to me, he started that with, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples. Go save those people. Go literally rescue them. From hell. We don't want to make the same mistakes that Israel made, but we can't think we're smarter than they are, so we won't. We can't think, well, it's been thousands of years, we've grown since then, so we won't. No, we haven't. We're making the same mistakes. The church in general, I'm not just talking about our local church, the church in general is not honoring what God has called us to do, not honoring that great commission. Israel didn't either. They were given provisions to bring foreigners in. A lot of people think God's chosen people were just the Jews. No. Remember what God said to Abraham, through you all nations of the world would be blessed. And they were given instructions for the sojourners, the travelers that would be coming in to, to tell them about the living God. And I don't know where to draw this line, and, and we certainly can't judge others' hearts. But it was God's people, His chosen people, who He chose to deliver out of Egypt. And He took them, and He gave them the law, and He provided for them. This whole group of people, all these Hundreds of thousands of people and they brought them right to the gateway and when they disobeyed, God said to them, none of those who despised me shall see it. I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable this morning, but just because we've been hanging out in church all our lives doesn't guarantee us entry into eternity with Christ. Obedience. Now, Obedience—not that your works gain you entry—but how can you have the Holy Spirit in you and not be obedient? So your works are like James said: "Show me faith by let me see your works. Faith without works is dead." In other words, if we're not working, it's like saying we jumped in the pool but we're not wet. If we have the Holy Spirit in us, we're going to be bearing fruit. Paul said, you check yourself. Make sure you're in the faith. We're still in this world, but we are free. It's a limited freedom. But if you're following Christ, you have been delivered out of bondage into for now, a limited freedom, regardless of anything, regardless of who wins the elections, regardless of how widespread ISIS gets, regardless of how oppressed you may feel. John Bunyan said, I preach deliverance to others. I tell them there is freedom while I hear my own chains clang. But that's where we start we have the means for our delivery out of error into truth 1 Corinthians 3.18 let no one deceive himself if any among you thinks he is wise in this age let him become a fool that he may become wise for the wisdom of this world is folly with God Satan's a liar and has successfully convinced such a large part of the world's population that this is myth, that it's fairy tale, that it's allegory. That's a better word. It makes people feel better. It's allegory. It's supposed to teach you something. This is the inerrant, inspired, true word of God. And we've been delivered, promised, out of this world, into an eternal promised land. There is a better day coming, church, that will make all this other stuff so well worth the effort. We are promised into an eternity. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more sin. And and I've talked about this a lot, sometimes jokingly, I don't have my keys on me, but I say, you know, we carry car keys because we live in a sinful world, right? I have to lock my car or my house because there's sin in the world. From there on up, the things that we deal with every day that we don't even think about that we have to deal with because we live in a sinful world. But there's a day coming when that won't be the truth anymore. But we must remember where we need to be. And with whom we need to be. Joshua lived through this. Right? He followed Moses. He was Moses' right hand man. He saw everything that happened. He saw the hand of God at work. He saw the, the pillar of the cloud and the fire. He saw those lead them. He saw the manna. He saw the water come from the rock. He saw the entry into the promised land. He saw the walls fall down around Jericho. Right? He saw it all. But he also saw people forget time after time after time what God had done. So right before his death, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel and said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. I gave you the land on which you have not labored, cities that you have not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. That was a vision of heaven. We're going to live in a city that we didn't build, right? Same promise they had always had, but he gives this reminder. Before he dies, Joshua says to the people, Now therefore fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And I would say to you, put away anything that's keeping you from full service to God. There's no balance. People talk about balanced lives and there's things in which that makes sense. You know, balanced diet, balanced exercise, balanced... There's no balance in our spiritual life. We have to be fully committed to Christ. It's not a little bit of Jesus over here and a little bit of something else over there. Be fully committed. Put away the other stuff. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. The God your father served in the region beyond the river? Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? Or your career? Or your mortgage? Or your team? If serving God is wrong, then pick today who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.